Welcome to Caregiver SOS On Air, presented by the WellMed Charitable Foundation with nationally known gerontologist Carol Zernio and veteran broadcaster and attorney Ron Aaron. This program provides health, wellness, and other information for caregivers who are vital to the health and well-being of so many people across our country. Now, here are your hosts, Ron Aaron and Carol Zernio. Well, welcome to Caregiver SOS On Air. We are so pleased to have you with us. I'm Ron Aaron. Our co-host, Carol Zerniel, is with us as well. Well, I am absolutely thrilled. And, and when I first started, there was one book on caregiving, and it was The 36-Hour Day uh, by Dr. Peter Ravens. And we have him on the show today. I'm happy. This is brushes with greatness for me. Um, and just absolutely thrilled to have him on the show. Let's introduce him. Uh, Dr. Ravens uh, holds a master's in... Uh, Public Health, a professor emeritus of the Departments of Psychiatry and Medicine at the Johns Hopkins University School of Medicine. He was the founding director of the Division of Geriatric and Neuropsychiatry and the first holder of the Richmond Family Professorship in Alzheimer's Disease and Related Dementia. And as Carol said, his book, The 36-Hour Day, uh, really began uh, the look at caregiving that has taken to us, uh, taken to where it is now. His was the leading work and is in the field of caregiving, especially for those with dementia. And Dr. Ravens, it is so great to see a book now in its seventh edition, which is pretty cool. In the beginning, doctor, what attracted you to the whole question of caregiving and dementia? Uh, well, uh, and thanks for having me, Ryan and Carol. Uh, while I was a medical student, um, I became interested in both sort of the brain and uh, human behavior and uh, couldn't quite figure out how do you, how could I put those two together? And then after I did my psychiatry training, um, I decided to do a one-year training program at Johns Hopkins with someone who had a similar interest. And they had, and this was in the 1970s, so really long time ago, they had set up an Alzheimer's disease evaluation program. It was one of the first. And um, so every week I spent a day evaluating people with memory problems and then working with them and their families. And I just found first that uh, it was very satisfying because that you could surprisingly, in a way, you could really help people. Um, and then second, there was really a need. So I, I kind of stumbled into it um, and it met my pre-existing interests. And the title, of course, is so apt because... Uh, my mother, for example, cared for my dad who, who had Alzheimer's. Uh, and, and the day is at least a 36-hour day. It never ends. Yes, that, that's what the title means. I, I worry occasionally that it's too negative, but, but it's catchy and, and people like it. I mean, it acknowledges that there are a lot of challenges to being a caregiver. Well, I was going to say, have you ever thought of cha changing to a 48-hour day? I mean, are things <laughs> in the time that you've written it to now, is the caregiver's day getting any shorter or, or is it longer? Uh, good question. Um, but I do think we know much more now about how to help people than we did 40 years ago. So maybe that would be on the side of shortening it. Um, but it's still very challenging. So maybe the best thing is just to keep it where it is. Right. Well, um, you know, the the you talked about the dementia piece. But when you, it really was the first book to look at caregiving and, you know, how, how was it, did it, was anybody else talking about caregiving or really was it the observation of here's, 
here's this person with dementia that relies on this family member in most cases. No, I think that there were a few other people. It's sort of interesting, you know, that all of a sudden, uh, again, in the late 1970s, a, a number of different people developed an interest, recognized the need and, and developed an interest. I think we were lucky in that we sort of stumbled into coming out with the first book. Um, and even that, that uh, maybe I can tell that story because what happened was we had started the local uh, chapter of the Alzheimer's Association. And um, so we started meeting once a month and after, and, and I would give, or one of us would give a little talk at the beginning on something practical, how to find long-term care, how to manage incontinence or how to get somebody to go to the doctor. And after the third month, the president of the, this new association said, Dr. Ravens, your talks are very helpful, but the minute I get home, I can't really remember what you said. So we said, okay. So we started writing up pamphlets each month on whatever we talked about. And then very quickly we realized we had a bunch of pamphlets and we wrote a few more and put them together and started giving them out to all our patients. Um, and then somehow people in other places heard about it. We started getting letters. Can you send us this? And so I was, um, I ran into my boss one day and he said, well, you know, how are things going? And I said, they're going great, but my poor secretary is spending all her time mailing out these little booklets and can't get her work done. He said, I think you guys should write a book. So <laughs> that's how the book came about. Um, I love it. Oh, that's a great story. Yeah. Well, um, so when if it's in its seventh edition, what what kinds of things have you changed over the years? I, for this edition, the the majority of the changes um, really are related to new evaluations, new kinds of tests, um, new understandings of the biology of it. So that's the the bulk of the changes. In the sixth edition, we added a lot more about very early memory changes, what people now call mild cognitive impairment, because we've learned a lot about that. So each edition, um, you know, something new comes up that has to be described. Um, there are new PET brain scans. Um, now they were mentioned in the last edition, but we really now talk about them for a few pages. Um, and, you know, this new medicine that's just been approved. We knew it was in the works, and so um, we and the publishers together said, well, if, if it gets approved before the book is published, we, we ha will have to write a paragraph. So we sort of were ready. We had a place to put it, and um, when it got approved a month ago, actually the first printing of the book was already sold out, and so we were able to get a whole paragraph in about this new medication. So those are the main things, but, you know, it's interesting when we first wrote the book, there was no such thing as assisted living 40 years ago. It didn't exist. So in, in the third edition, we, we had to add actually a number of paragraphs about assisted living and the sort of the social model of care. So there are always new things. And very occasionally, someone will tell us a new way to manage a problem that we hadn't heard before or hadn't thought about. And we add that as well. Well, I think, you know, that's that's what I, I love about the book and, and, and sort of the field itself. You know, when I started working in an Alzheimer's program in the, you know, the panhandle of Florida, Alzheimer's was a diagnosis of, of you know, of omission. You tried everything else. And if, if it was anything else, you, you had to die to, to prove somebody had Alzheimer's or no tests. 
and we still talked about senility. And, you know, we, when I look back, it's from the early eighties, when I started, it's changed a lot. Um, we know so much more about dementia, uh, and the language has changed. And, the I think for me, the biggest thing is recognizing the person living with Alzheimer's and, and really giving um, some more attention to the person who is actually has the disease. Going to come right back to you, doctor. I want to let folks know who may have just joined us. You're listening to Caregiver SOS on air. I'm Ron Aaron, along with our co-host, Carol Zerniel. And on the Caregiver SOS on air hotline, Dr. Peter Ravens. He is the author of the 36-hour day, a family guide to caring for people who have Alzheimer's disease and other forms of dementia. I was just going to sort of agree with Carol how much things have changed and how much we've really learned. You have to remind yourself that we know much more now than we do used to. And so I, even though we still don't have a cure, I think there's a lot of reason for optimism. Well, and some of, do you talk about in the latest edition, I mean, some of the, the behavioral management, you know, in, in what's changed in terms of the environment and the behavior? Because does it, behavior changes, at least among our caregiver specialists, that's what we still hear drives people crazy, is the, is the behaviors. Yes. And, you know, th- those really, for most people, uh, the behavioral symptoms are the most challenging. And, and people are surprised when they hear that, who, people who aren't caring for somebody, because they think, oh, it's a disease of forgetfulness. Um, and all you have to do is remind people what they've forgotten. Um, but, you know, as you just said, you know, a third to two thirds of people have really significant changes in their behavior. Um, and um, there, there was a fair amount in the first edition. I mean, we, I'm a psychiatrist. That was really my, one of my main interests from the very beginning was trying to figure out ways to change the environment so that that could support the person with dementia more rather than overwhelming or threatening them. Um, but, you know, we have learned more over the years. And many times these suggestions come from caregivers who say, you know, I tried this and it worked for my mom. And then if it makes sense, uh, we'll, we'll put that in the book. Um, well, but we, that, those are still the biggest challenges. Yeah, we, um, we had a small family reunion in the days of COVID here over the weekend. And we were reminded that all of the family photos were missing because my mother-in-law, who had Alzheimer's one day, just threw them over the fence. You know, just decided to clean everything out and tossed it over the fence in West Texas where it all blew away. Um, and so that was it for the family photos. <laughs> Uh, yeah. you know, the things you can't anticipate, you know, it just doesn't really exactly. affect you. Right. You know, in some so, prairie dog's basement, all your decorated. photos are lining the walls. That's right. Made a great mess. It's probably not on the walls. It's probably on the bottom. <laughs> exactly. I know in our case, uh, uh, Dr. My dad with uh, uh, Alzheimer's, my mother and dad married a lot of years, well over 60, had a wonderful, beautiful, loving relationship. Growing up, I never once remember them getting into an argument Uh, And then as my dad got more and more into the disease, uh, he turned angry uh, and he would yell at my mom, which he had never done. Fortunately, my brother, who's a psychologist, explained to her, it's not you, it's not him, it's the disease. But it was a shock. Yeah, well, thank goodness for your brother. That that is one important thing to remind people that, you know, the disease changes some people, not everybody, but for many people those kinds of symptoms are the result of the disease. And then the question is, can we figure out some way to diminish, let's say, your, the anger 
um, so that the person isn't getting as frustrated. Sometimes we're successful, sometimes we're not. What are well, some strategies? Well, I think the first thing, particularly if, if, if this starts all of a sudden, uh, it's always important to make sure that there's not new, some new medical problem or a new medication that's causing a side effect. If it's been going on for a long time, that's much less likely. Um, and I, then I think that the, the next step is to think about, are there certain triggers? And I'll just use your dad as an example. You know, if you and your brother looked at things, might your mother be expecting him to do things that he used to do, but can't do any longer? He then gets frustrated and out of his frustration, he gets angry. And if you can identify a trigger like that, then it could work, say, with your mom to try to lower her expectations, to not put the person in a situation where they become frustrated, or at least to lessen um, the frustration. Sometimes you can't avoid it. Um, but it, So that's looking at the environment and trying to figure out, might we inadvertently be doing something to bring on those kinds of symptoms? Now, hold that thought. We're going to come right back to you and Carol Zerniel. I'm Ron Aaron. You're listening to Caregiver SOS on air. The WellMed Charitable Foundation would like to remind you it is important to stay connected while social distancing. Caregiver stress may be higher now, and specialists are available to talk with. There's no question that we are living in not normal times, but whether the new normal will be the old normal is yet to be seen. So if you are troubled, if you are feeling stressed, Ask for help. Services are provided at no cost. See more at caregiversos.org. Hello, friend. I'm Ron Aaron, along with our co-host, Carol Zerniel. We're talking with Dr. Peter Ravens. Uh, he is booked the 36-hour day a family guide to caring for people who have Alzheimer's disease and other dementia. Now in its seventh edition is indeed the Bible of caregiving and caring for someone with dementia. And Carol, you wanted to pick it up? Yeah, I was curious. Um, it, you, you made such a great point about how sometimes it's, it's us as the caregiver that's doing something that triggers the person that has the Alzheimer's. And we may not even realize um, that we're doing it. And that's something that we didn't always understand, um, you know, what, what's some of the, you, you talked about some of the lessons that you've learned from the caregivers along the way. What are some, do, do any of them stand out to you that you had kind of aha moments um, as you were working on the new edition or past editions? Well, I think um, one of them relates to something that you asked about earlier, and, and that is to recognize that even people with very severe memory problems, and maybe they can't even recognize their spouse or children any longer, um, that they still can live in the minute and still have pleasure, even when they might not be able to name their grandchildren, for example. Um, and so that it really, it took me a while, I think, to appreciate that our goal is to maximize the quality of life of the person with the disease and to try to find what still gives them pleasure and how can we introduce that into their lives as much as possible. Um, again, it took me a little while to catch on to that. And that's something then that you really have to, everybody has to work together. Um, you know, sometimes it's the children who say, you know, dad always liked this or the spouse or um, 
sometimes even a doctor or a nurse said, I remember when, when your dad would come in and he would really like X or Y. Um, so it's, it's kind of knowing who, who was the person before and what can we do now to give them pleasure in the instant, in the here and now. Well, what, what is the, you know, what advice do you give? Say somebody's new, we hand them the 36 hour day, you know, where, what's the, what's the first thing that you want them to know about this journey that they're about to start on? I tell people, I think the first thing is to try to be informed about the illness itself. So, you know, not only read the book though, um, they're good websites, they're good local organizations and agencies, they're support groups. So start out being, uh, try to be as educated as you can. That does not solve all the problems and that doesn't take away all the emotional hurt, but that's often the easiest thing uh, to achieve is at least to learn what's the disease, what does it mean, what are the kinds of symptoms that it causes. That, that's a good start. And then I think you have to focus in on your love, make sure that all the appropriate medical evaluation has been done. Um, that you have a good primary care doctor who knows the person well, so that if they change, um, they won't attribute everything to the Alzheimer's disease because people who have these illnesses are often older and they develop other diseases that can be treated. So, so that's a second thing. Have, have a primary care doctor who knows the person well. And then to focus on them and think what are their remaining abilities and strengths and what are their weaknesses and vulnerabilities? And our, our goal is to maximize people's strengths, whatever they can still do, and to minimize the pressure that brings out their vulnerabilities. I tell people, I, I have what I call the three strike rule. If you try something three times and it upsets the person or it doesn't work out, there's a good chance that the disease has gotten in the way. So if somebody says, my dad used to love to go to the symphony, but now every time we try to get him to go, he gets upset and angry and we, we actually never get out of the house. And I usually say, you know, that may be a sign that that's just a little too much for him. But what, what can you do to still give him the pleasure of hearing music without having to get dressed and go to the downtown and, and all those things? So, that, so it's that issue of identify remaining strengths, maximize those and minimize the vulnerabilities and weaknesses. Yeah, I really, I, I like what you said about having the primary care physician because it is difficult. You know, we, we joke in my family that there's no end to the things that can, you can develop and as you grow old, no limitations at all. Um, and so having a primary care doctor that can say, oh, this is new. I mean, that's really important um, as opposed to it being just another symptom of the existing problem. Absolutely. Yeah, that was so the, uh, recently a caregiver came and she'd just gotten a diagnosis and the diagnosis was mixed dementia, which is something else that's new. What does that mean? Mixed dementia? Yeah, mixed dementia, uh, very likely that refers to the fact that many people have both vascular dementia, that is uh, dementia caused by multiple small little strokes and Alzheimer's disease. Um, and for reasons that we still don't know, these two distinct causes occur together about twice as often as you would expect by chance. So this is some of the evidence that blood vessel disease in the brain might actually lead to or somehow enhance 
the Alzheimer disease causing process. So mixed, that's what the mixed is. It's two things together. And it's very difficult to disentangle, you know, what's caused one and what's caused the other. The reason it's an important diagnosis to make, though, is that we do know how to prevent stroke. We're, we're actually very good at that. And, and um, we often lose sight of the fact that um, there are about 60% fewer strokes now than there were 40 years ago. So we are much better at preventing stroke than we used to be. And, and if you can prevent any more strokes, you can prevent that part of the dementia from getting worse. Now, is that because of blood thinners? Uh, well, um, there's a variety of things. Some people need blood thinners. Some people have uh, blood clots on their heart or their neck that can be treated. Um, lowering cholesterol is a very important uh, step in, in preventing stroke and heart attack. Um, and helping people got, get on a better diet and maybe even continue to exercise. All those things pr can prevent the stroke aspect of it. And interestingly enough, all those things may slow down the progression of the Alzheimer's disease too. So there's some interaction in the brain of all these things, exercise, cholesterol, uh, blood sugar from diabetes that we don't totally understand. You know, that's really fascinating because what the picture that you're painting is you know, something that's layered and much more complex than a disease doing one thing in your brain, um, that it is there are multiple things and and we can tease out some of the things we can identify and can control like diet, like exercise that never um, is a bad idea, uh, unless your doctor says don't do it, but generally, uh, and, and a lot of times the exercise, you know, will help that person with Alzheimer's sleep a little bit better as well. Absolutely. So what keeps you going and motivated? You're still, as I listen to you and as I watch, uh, we see each other via Zoom. For those of you on the radio, you don't have the benefit of seeing all of us. Uh, but I, I see great animation, excitement and enthusiasm for this topic. And you've been doing this for a lot of years. Yes. Well, I, I am mostly retired from clinical work. I, I will say that. But um, I still do teaching uh, at the medical school. And so I get to talk with um, students and trainees about what they can do. Um, that's very rewarding. Um, I, I keep up the book and I, I still do a little bit of writing uh, and help a, a little bit on research projects. So that, that sort of keeps me going, going as well. Um, and, you know, it, I think part of that, Ron, is when I think about how much progress has been made and how much we can offer people, um, that, that does really sort of give, give me cheer and want to put the word out. I mean, I appreciate you doing this, you know, on, on, on this radio and podcast because many people don't have this information. And so it's a real service what you're doing um, to help people understand we can make life better, even though we can't cure the disease. Where should one look for uh, a, a physician, a psychiatrist, a neurologist uh, to help treat uh, and diagnose uh, dementia and, and related diseases uh, in, in in whatever city we're living in. Where do you find the people who can do this work? Well, I think the first thing is if you already have a primary care doctor, you know, ask that person, um, do they feel comfortable helping you uh, evaluate and manage the problem? Most primary care doctors now are trained to do this and not all of them enjoy it or not all of them have the skill set, but many do. 
And many uh, primary care practices now have nurse practitioners and, and social workers in the practice who also can help. Some doctors say, you know, that's not really um, what I'm good at, and they can recommend somebody. And if they can't, um, then I would suggest uh, either contacting the local Alzheimer's Association, the local uh, area office on aging, talk to other caregivers and find out if they have a doctor who is helpful. Um, sometimes it does need to be a specialist, but also, but often it's really a good generalist. I, I think, you know, as far as seeing a geriatrician or a geriatric psychiatrist or a neurologist, I believe that um, when there are challenges that the primary doctor can't solve or figure out, that's when you go to a specialist. I don't think everybody else would, would agree with me, but I think there are many primary care doctors who really are good now. And that's a big change over 40 or 50 years ago. That's cool. I don't, by the way, most doctors, nurses, and social workers had not heard of Alzheimer's disease 40 years ago. So that's an amazing change in and of itself. Well, unfortunately, we are out of time. Carol, you get the last word. Well, I just want to say thank you. Thank you for, you know, sort of the laying a path for those of us who work with people with Alzheimer's and their caregivers to have a resource and inspire us. Uh, you know, to try to help any way that we can on the journey. Thank you so much, Dr. Peter Ravens. The book, The 36-Hour Day for Carol Zerniel. I'm Ron Aaron. Thank you so much for listening to Caregiver SOS On Air. You've been listening to Caregiver SOS On Air, an exclusive presentation of the WellMed Charitable Foundation. We welcome emails with suggestions and comments on this program at radio at wellmed.net. Join co-hosts Carol Zerniel and Ron Aaron next week for more on caregiving, improving the health and well-being of caregivers and their care recipients everywhere. For more on caregiving and podcasts of our programs, visit caregiversos.org.